Hello, everyone, listeners to the BunkerCast Reading Club. It's Wednesday, the 5th of October. I'm Alex Hochuli, and this is the Reading Club on Conspiracy Theories. Hello, George. Hello, Phil. Hi, Alex. Hi. So, just to recap a little bit, in the first two sessions in this cynical ideology block of the Reading Club, which is taking up the middle part of the year, we looked at how cynicism has become the dominant ideology, both from above and from below. With the disbelief in meta-narratives that's characteristic of post-modernity, we're always at a distance from official narratives. We don't believe in them, and yet we still act as if we do. That's as Slavoj Žižek puts it, which we dealt with in the first session of the cynical ideology block. So our actions testify to our lives being structured by ideology, even if we don't actively believe in these ideas. And from above, cynicism also applies. So elites don't buy what they're selling, and they let everybody know this. And somehow that actually seems to strengthen them in their position because it insulates elites from criticism and from satire. All this is important to bear in mind as we discuss conspiracy theories today, ones which are advanced as much by elites as by people. Are conspiracy theories more prevalent today? Uh, The fact that official narratives seem to have less purchase, you would think, would suggest that conspiracy theories are more prevalent, but we'll come on to explore this in just a little bit. So just a little bit more broadly on conspiracy theories and writing about conspiracy theories, there's obviously a huge literature on the matter. Some focused on the theories, that is, a set of ideas which are as yet unproven, seeking to explain some phenomena, and others on conspiracies themselves, whether real or imagined, and sometimes seeking to advance their own theories as to why these conspiracies have happened. There are works also that take a mainstream, almost quasi-official position, seeing conspiracy theories as a pathology. So uh, to take one recent example, Nancy Rosenthal's A Lot of People Are Saying, which argues that the growth in conspiracy theories is undermining democracy. And then you have works which take the other uh, position, which is uh, to see the concern with conspiracy theories as themselves a panic or as a way to deflect criticism from elites. So you have DeHaven Smith's Conspiracy Theory in America or Jack Bratich's Conspiracy Panics. These are good examples of those. Um, And... Just to say, there's actually a whole list on conspiracy theories, which I compiled a little while back, drawn from suggestions that people gave me on Twitter. Um, So first of all, thank you if you contributed to that and you're listening. And secondly, the list is linked in the show notes if you'd like to read further. Um, Just one comment on uh, on this sort of uh, literature on conspiracy theories. It seems to me that there's a bit of a similarity, at least in the division that I just portrayed with the literature on populism. So... There's obviously a whole lot of literature on populism that's uh, dry political science, description, uh, comparative works or histories of populism. But the stuff that gets the most mainstream attention is works of anti-populism, you know, the types, right, uh, that see populism as the root of all our problems, this thing that uh, interceded into this nice um, end of history world and, and ruined everything. But there's also a kind of another set of works, which is uh, works of, I guess, anti-anti-populism, which is not to say that they necessarily defend populism, but ones which locate the problem elsewhere and see in the establishment obsession with populism as an attempt to distract from the real issues. And I think this kind of um, mirrors somewhat the literature on conspiracy theory. So today we're discussing Empire of Conspiracy by Timothy Melly, uh, which is a work from 2000. So it's a little... Uh, It's from a little while ago, and it really reflects on the American post-war world. And we'll come on to whether it describes our world or is applicable 
um, in just a bit. Millie is a professor of English at Miami University, uh, whose work is mainly on literary and cultural history, especially as concerns security and secrecy. Um, and some of his other works seem pretty interesting, though I can't admit having read them. Um, so why have we chosen this work amidst all this other literature on conspiracy theory? Um, firstly, I think it's useful because it threads a line between the two positions that I mentioned, um, the sort of anti-conspiracy line and the anti-anti-conspiracy line. Uh, so it doesn't simply pathologize conspiracy theorizing, nor does it seek to defend conspiracy theorizing either. Um, and I think more importantly, it advances what I think is a compelling case, tracing conspiracy theories, at least in post-war America, to a central concern with what he calls agency panic. Um, and there's more on that in just a sec when I bring Phil and George in. So before we kind of get started and, and begin the discussion, and just so we don't end up talking across purposes, I just wanted to venture a general, very broad definition of conspiracy theory. Um, and of course, guys, feel free to disagree with this one, but I just wanted to um, start with this so that we end up on common ground. Uh, basically, it is a conspiracy theory is a belief that a powerful group is acting in secret with deliberate intentions and whose effects are damaging. Um, I think these are important because um, particularly the notion of secrecy, because often I think a lot of discussions about conspiracy theory end up pointing to things which are done out in the open. And I think the notion of secrecy is, is important and the notion of intentionality as well. Um, so it's not just um, the damaging effects can't just be a, a consequence, a side effect of what powerful groups are doing, but a deliberately sought end. Are we all okay with that? Well, yeah, I think as a, as, a, as a starting point, I mean, in the reading, and I'm sure we'll discuss this, one of the things that Melly talks about is how uh, there are considerable departures from this, this sort of uh, original, what you might call the kind of original flavor conspiracy theory. But no, I think that's all of the key aspects. It's a small group, hidden, acting in secret, coordinating through like coded messages, and seeking to further their own interests through that kind of um, that kind of small concerted action. I mean, I think the the interesting thing comes in Melly's argument that this, as a model for conspiracy theory in America in the course of the twentieth century, gets kind of replaced in some ways. But I think as a kind of as a starting point, I think that works quite well. Yeah. No. Good. I mean, yeah. There's things like you could add about the them seeking control right that the the, the secretive groups seek control but i, I don't want to um presume too much because may, maybe there's conspiracy theories things that we would agree are conspiracy theories which don't stipulate that these you know a small powerful group is seeking to control people for example maybe they're trying to do other things um anyway so um i uh, as a way to start off I, I suggest that we all bring two conspiracy theories ones which are somewhat prevalent today one elite and one popular to put it that way. So um, go ahead, uh, Phil, what, what, what are yours? Yeah, so my um, my kind of bottom-up conspiracy theory, I suppose, would be the, and one that we've um, spoken about before, but it would be the idea of um, <clears throat> the World Economic Forum as a kind of a center or a nerve center of globally coordinating the elites effectively um, and that, you know, kind of endowing Klaus Schwab with um, with power. And from the top down is trickier because, the you know, there's two obvious big ones that are kind of genuine conspiracy theories but have had more traction and grip and power than um, any of the kind of bottom-up ones. And in Britain, that would be the dark money conspiracy 
um, or any of the associated conspiracies, the idea that the Brexit vote was manipulated by um, subversive foreign forces and that it was carried out through um, financing, kind of dubious financing, which is always in classical conspiracy theory terms kind of left vague, but alluded to in cryptic and sinister ways. All right, good. I don't, uh, George. Th- I don't think that this is necessarily received as a conspiracy theory. I think there is at least one journalist who won the Orwell Prize for some uh, investigative journalism in this in this space. But <laughs> no, I mean, the idea of that kind of conspiracy theory from above, just to kind of check that I understand what you what you mean there, Alex, the I think in the in the, the book, the end of the end of history of this podcast, which we must have plugged a million times now. But I think the idea of knobs is there's clearly something related there. There's something which can't be understood accepted or explained some political event and so the explanation becomes pretty like there has to be some um agency inserted there because it can't be that people are so like um you know they actually wanted to vote brexit they actually kind of you know wanted to vote for trump these things are like you know they don't make sense plainly so the um the the elites were resort to a more sophisticated brand of uh, conspiracy theory in their kind of neoliberal order breakdown syndrome um uh, performances but no i think in terms of the so conspiracy theories from below i'm no, no hang on hang on hang on you didn't give okay. me a conspiracy theory from above you gave oh. me an explanation and a kind of contextualization you didn't oh, give me I a mean, concrete example phil, <laughs> phil took my um <laughs> my example that i put in the, the chat before we started recording so i'm, I'm, no, I'm very aware of a conspiracy Gate, against is, me no, you said russia gay which is different did i oh okay well there's there's so many of them okay so one of them yeah rush the i think that the there's a there's an archetype, isn't there? That that's generally no no, no um, hang on. Super... We don't want a discussion of this. Just just give it just give me an example. Of an okay, Russia Gate. Okay. Okay, I'll just get <laughs> Russia Gate and then from below, 9-11 was an inside job. There you go. Okay, good. Um I have a couple I have a couple. One uh the one from below is that you know immigrants or refugees um are being either brought in or coming into Europe to secretly Islamicize Europe. Um, and the one from above, I have one kind of humorous, ridiculous one, which is um, Bolsonaro's claim that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, rather than being a kind of environmentalist trying to defend the Amazon, etc., um, is actually responsible for setting fires uh, as a sort of operation, sort of false flag or whatever, or that he's a sort of maybe crisis actor. No, see, I don't I'm think tempted, I'm actor, tempted but... to believe that one. That he that DiCaprio is setting fires in the Amazon. No, I don't. I don't think that so. he's a false flag operation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's um, there's another one which I think to which I owe. I now I, I don't remember whether this is in the Melly book and tell me if it is or if it's something that maybe Jeff Schellenberger, previous guest, has uh, has written or if it's something else entirely. So excuse me for that. But um, it, it's this idea that the JFK assassination soon after it happened, the official narrative regarding it was disbelieved not just by a large body of americans but even by a majority of americans and then subsequent government reports have even um you know weakened very much the official narrative but that today a kind of um, establishment liberals believe in a version of the events which is so much like the official original version that it ends up being a conspiracy theory which is to say the version that they hold which is like that you know that the assassin acted alone and that there was nothing else and that, you know, we it, the event is completely fully explained, ends up being 
in holding to a kind of like being an over-identification with the official narrative, a conspiracy theory itself, because the government itself has has um, has count- contradicted this this narrative, right? So it places them in the position so far off from not just what the new official kind of position is on, but but as well as the kind of popular understanding of it, whatever however multifarious those might be. Layers within layers. No, I mean, what, what I was going to say before I was instructed just to to give examples um, was that I'm definitely more sympathetic towards these, like, the more that a conspiracy theory is from below and not above, the more sympathetic that uh, I think I am to it. I think I would even go so far as to defend the idea of, like, increasingly becoming a crank. I know Phil is the crank of the podcast, but I definitely think there is something about... No, it's, it's like, definitely no, you, I'm actually. Dad, Phil is cranky. I'm the dad of the podcast. That's Phil, yeah, the exactly. There's a difference. Phil, Phil might be a little bit cranky in terms of, uh, you know, it's just disposition. Um, but but you're definitely the crank, George, here. Am I? Okay, yeah. well, I'm happy to. Did, did you I mean, know... There was a... Did you know that rich people are actually all Jews and they control things? Um, you know, I don't how about think that that's a crank. Conspir- conspiracy theory from below. No, I'm not a fan of anti-Semitism. I have to that say that one's from above as well. But as, the, as all these are, a... which is why the division between kind of popular and elite conspiracy theories is always um, is no is never so clean cut, right? Um, because mm. there might be counter elites who advance conspiracy theories and play to certain publics and so on. Um, but I would, I would just quickly, I would say there was a um, a group called a WhatsApp group called Cranks Anonymous. That I wanted to give a shout out to if anybody in that group is listening, which was very helpful during the pandemic of like the knee jerk reaction being like the official narrative is like your starting position should be critical of that. So I feel like there is a you know there is a kind of a spirit of independent thought which very quickly kind of shades into. Cr- crankism which i'm you know that's the that's the position that i would put myself at like covid covid lag lab leak crisis actor theory you know i'm increasingly oh, thinking oh maybe maybe these th- maybe i need to do some more researches maybe i need to read ten thousand posts on these and then i can come to my own decision well the covid lab theory though i mean that seems i never took that as a conspiracy um i mean it always seemed to me far-fetched it seems to have more, um, you know, it seems to have more legs now. Um, but I mean, also, like, it doesn't really make a difference to anything. I don't think, you know, like, we're going to um, come to that. We're going to come to that. It would be, you yeah. know, it would be something that might, you know, it would be something to wield against the Chinese government if you're a Chinese citizen. Um, but outside of that context, it seems to me just to kind of feed into new kind of Cold War paranoia. That it doesn't seem to me to, you know, whether or not it was uh, kind of whether or not it came from bats in a Wuhan wet market or whether it leaked out of experiments conducted in a laboratory. It doesn't seem to me to make much difference to the real problems associated with the pandemic, which was how we responded to it, not how it originated. Um, and so I don't think that the lab thing counts as a conspiracy theory to begin with. Yeah, I mean, it, I just think it's it, unfair it, 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 on bats. Why are they getting blamed? just it just stirs up anti-bat feeling for no real reason um the, the idea that it would be a conspiracy theory the lab leak one would be that there would be a cover-up now that would be the conspiracy right um that they didn't want to reveal but there was that. a cover-up right i mean that's well, that seems okay. to be part of the evidence okay. as well right? I, all i'm i know i i agree all i'm saying is that the, the conspiracy theory nature of it would be regarding a cover-up not the fact that it happened anyway we're getting we're getting sidetracked by this um because i wanted well, to no, turn to the I text. think i think it is i think actually 
it's kind of important. I think so to make it a conspiracy theory would be the idea that it was deliberately leaked as a way to test bioweapons on the population or as a way, say, to boost China's economy, to make it central to global exports or, you know, something like that. That I think would be a conspiracy. That would be kind of putting it in the league of the conspiracy theory. So I think that's important in as much as the point with conspiracy theories is the assumption or the attribution of intentionality. Right. Yeah. So that would be the difference. Yeah. And and I mean, it should also be mentioned that there's plenty of conspiracy theories out there which are pretty harmless. I, I don't just mean in, in terms of their effects, but that they don't even stipulate some major sort of harm. It's just like there's Give us a harmless this, one. Oh, like, I mean, OK, so so there's like so here's one like, you know, this new Coke conspiracy that um, or theory about a conspiracy that that Coke changed its formula to an inferior formula of new Coke and that then they actually swapped it out for the original one and they covered it up. I mean, it's like, okay, and? <laughs> um, but, there, you know, there's plenty of these and, and obviously there's escalating degrees about their the claims they make and how big their claims are. That one doesn't seem to make many claims other than corporations lie. Um, or cover things up, which is kind of a banality, all the way up to society is a huge form of social control and mind control and whatnot. Um, are we drinking? Are we drinking new Coke now or old Coke again? I, that I don't know. Or, or the, the Avril Lavigne oh, one is a good one, which is a similar kind of replacement thing where the original Avril What's Lavigne that? died ages ago and she's been replaced by by a fake, and people go through looking at her like oh she's a bit taller than she was before and so on um i'm a believer wow. in that one by the way new new avril anyway let's get it let's get onto the text so firstly um well i guess george what's Millie's understanding of agency panic uh and the way that it relates to conspiracy theory yeah so i mean his i think it's probably the central claim of of what of the reading as a whole is the idea that conspiracy theory is a symptom of a more pervasive and general anxiety about social control and then agency panic within this is and he's he, he writes an intense intense anxiety about an apparent loss of autonomy the conviction one's actions are being controlled by someone else or that ha one has been constructed by powerful external agents so it's this idea that you know because because you don't have any, this would be one reading of it, because you don't have any control, any agency over your life, you are casting around and trying to work out where is where is the, the thing that's really controlling your life um, coming from. So, I mean, I would even link this to James Hartfield's ideas about the death of the subject. So you could call this the death of the subject American style in the sense, I mean, he also argues conspiracy theories are kind of classically American. This idea that like, yeah, you. It, it's a it's an attempt to re um, to kind of find another source of control of of agency of like why things happen in a predictable way, and because you don't have a um, coherent kind of political subject, you don't have that the kind of the the basis of the individual subject is being undermined. You look to you look for in all the various structures that you can see in society. So I mean, it's an, I think it's an interesting like diagnosis of why you would have conspiracy theories um, and why it's all originates in this kind of intense concern about agency um, and you know that's the, the starting point for conspiracy theorizing phil did you find this uh convincing just before recording you said it was more or less sort of interesting what do you think no that was a comment about the book as a whole the agency panic i think is very is a very good way to 
um, describe that uh, the kind of very familiar trope from the uh, literatures and texts that he examines and very familiar, I think, to anyone, you know, who's watched any movie or read even one fiction book, I think, you know, over the last 40, 50 years or whatever. Um, so I think it's a very effective way of capturing it. My um, my kind of, I suppose, my um, reservations uh, lie in a different direction. Okay, well, I guess we can come to that. But um, I, one thing that prompted me into thinking a little bit more deeply about this agency panic notion, and I think it's very good. I think it really does get to the to the kind of nub of what conspiracy theories do. Um, is However, that I don't know if it's of particular relevance to post-war America and its modes of thought and action in general, or is it more uh, of general application? Um, and maybe we can refer to some of the conspiracy theories we brought to discuss, you know, just at the beginning, yeah. whether agency panic applies, uh, you know, whether that because if if agency panic is the the real truth, I guess, in a way behind conspiracy theory, um, then it should be applicable to most of them. Um, so let's let's just pick a couple that we've that we've <clears throat> mentioned, right? So um, I think so. Well, it, I was it, say, so I Russia. Mean, let's take Russia Gate because it's a, it's a it's a bit of a softball one, right? Is there an agency well, panic behind Russia Gate? It's a tricky one because the your question about whether or not it's an American thing is tricky because um, you know given the given the way people are kind of plugged into contemporary American culture and also that the stakes of American politics by definition are you know greater than the stakes of smaller countries' politics, then it means everyone is kind of much more involved in them. Is there an agency panic? Um, I'm not sure it transplants so easily because. In the Melly text, the point of the agency panic is that this is what, you know, individual, what characters in novels and films feel. Um, it's, so it's kind of, it's describing the reaction of a of a prototypical um, fictive person. It's not describing a necessarily a sociological phenomenon. Um, so, you know, but with that caveat, I'd say, you know, is, does Russiagate have an agency panic? Um I'm not sure that it does. So I don't know how far, you know, how far the agency panic idea can extend. So the classic agency panic is you suddenly get this kind of queasy um, or vertiginous feeling or the character does that there are, you know, that they're manipulated by hostile um, subversive forces um, and that they're the degree of control or autonomy that they thought they had is actually, you know, undermined or circumscribed. Um I'm not quite sure that's the same thing as the agency panic with respect to Russiagate, because in Russiagate, the sensation, I think, was that there was um, a malevolent but identifiable foreign force that had manipulated institutions and also had manipulated other people, but not manipulated me. Right. So the believers in the Russiagate panic were the kind of, you know, the smart, the smart New York Times set, the um the PMC, uh, the well-to-do middle classes, and it was the dumb people who'd been manipulated by the evil Russians, um, whereas my sense of agency was, if anything, perhaps strengthened, you know, rather than called so, into question. So, I mean, I think it is, I think there is a, how, how about this as, an, as a way to, to put it, it's, it is a kind of projected agency panic. So the classic idea that Melly talks about is agency panic is the conviction that your own actions are being controlled by somebody else. There are all these coincidences and you suddenly like, 
things come into focus and you're like, oh shit, there's something going on here. But this is a little bit different because it's the conviction that other people's actions are being controlled by somebody else or that other people have been constructed by powerful external agents. So it's like, I think that it's clearly related because it's about the ability of not, as you said, Phil, not oneself, but those other people who don't read the New York Times um, for them to be controlled or to be constructed um, so I think there's it's clearly it's clearly related, but it's you know it's turned outwards from the individual to the rest of society. So it's a bit it, it has it's necessarily going to have some quite different characteristics if it's a projection rather than an introspection. Yeah, I think those are important qualifications. Though I guess the question of sense of loss of agency is important here because it's you know in the case of, you know the U.S. Democrats feeling that they lost an election which they felt they should have won so things have slipped out of their control something they believed was in their control and so there is a there is a sort of agency panic there in some regard I think it's important I think it's right what Phil says that um, this is something that's externalized it's not a, a feeling of um, oneself being controlled but it is a loss of control that that the self in this case experiences the self being you know whatever the democrats um and i think i, I just wanted to bring in an element which from the text that i thought was really interesting which is Melly's notion of, I guess, of an incomplete sociology, which underpins conspiracy theory, which is to say you think sociologically about agency, or rather the conspiracy theorist thinks sociologically about agency, while simultaneously retaining a concept of individual action that is at odds with sociology, right? So you can see things as being socially determined out there, but me, myself, I'm a kind of pure individual and I'm being, um, you know, um, uh, attacked somehow by by hostile forces um, who are seeking to control me. Um, and so it's a failure to kind of sociologize one's own position in society. Yeah, no, I think that the idea about kind of the, he, he says that there's some similarities between um, conspiracy theorizing and just generally, so, just general sociological theorizing that it's an attempt to kind of um put structures and agency like individual agency in you know in conversation with each other there's an attempt to get beneath the surface so like um disappearance reality distinction in marxism there is there's like a structure of layers of meaning all of these things are kind of quite like classic um social social theory kind of approaches but clearly there's there's a um yeah it, it's somehow incomplete or intention because the parts don't add up and that's what get, that's you know that's what makes it a conspiracy theory rather than a, just a general sociological theory because it's there has to be some um some parts of the some actors have an a, either an, an outsized or a, or a small a, a decreased ability to act within this structure yeah yeah i, I suppose this is it touches on. upon my well it touches upon my um critical reservations about the Melly text is because the presumption you know his clear presumption is with and I mean, I suppose it would be as an academic writer, but the clear presumption is with kind of sociology and specifically with kind of post-structural social thought against the, um, you know, the agency panic of these small, um, you know, these small individuals who deign to um, uh, misconceive themselves as, as having any kind of real autonomy. Um, and this is the, you know, the so his case, I mean, his point of agency panic is isn't just to describe the you know the the disposition of the fictional characters who undergo this in Blade Runner or in William Burroughs' work or whatever. It's to make a stronger claim, right? He's saying that agency panic um, 
recreates the basis for a false notion of agency, which is the idea of kind of heroic um, American, you know, a heroic, uh, rugged individual, um, the American of the pre-war era, the American citizen of the pre-war era who suddenly finds themselves hostage to sinister, to the sinister deep state and mega corporations in the post-war era. And so he wants, you know, he kind of wants to um, break that down. Um, and the problem, it seems to me, with the with the presumption of the whole thing is that in a way, Melly's claim is a conspiracy theory itself, right? That all of the conspiracy theories uh -oh. is exactly, is in fact, kind of inadvertently, or, you know, in fact, not inadvertently, but its effect is to recreate a flawed model of individual agency. And that is, in fact, the purpose of all the kind of agency panic built into conspiracy theorizing. And that's the problem. And that seems to me, you know, the presumption there that the um, that there is this kind of orchestrated effort to recreate um, heroic models of liberal individuality, that seems to me to verge on conspiracy theory but, but itself. He doesn't, but he doesn't. Does he make? Does he make the case at any point that there is an orchestrated attempt to reconstruct uh, no, liberal no, not that humanist I, well, individuality? No, but it's implied. No, but it's implied. So he points. He you know he says it's a mistake to because the agency panic recreates a false notion of agency, right? Which is at odds with what post structuralism teaches us. And so that it seems to me the implication of that is that it's an because it recurs across so much of um, our contemporary discourse in novels and film and literature, blah blah blah. That in fact, you know, the implication is that there's a concerted effort to recreate this false notion of individual I, autonomy. I disagree so with that's your the way reading I read it. it. I disagree. I, on top, let, can okay, I just disagree I know, with your me, reading of it, and then you can well, make let your me other just point. Complete the point, okay. right? Because it's also linked to what you know he makes. He goes into. Um, feminist authors as well, particularly Margaret Atwood, where he makes the case about how, um, you know, the agency panic also kind of tries to recreate essentially male, what he calls masculinist or patriarchal notions of individual autonomy. Um, and that, again, you know, that seems to me to be, um, you know, that seems to me to Again, the implication of that is effectively Melly is the conspiracy theorist, because if there is one conspiracy that is definitely not true, it's the idea of the patriarchy, the idea that there is an, some old man somewhere with a beard who kind of manipulate, who's at the center of everything and is effectively manipulating society in order to lay down the law. That definitely doesn't exist. So the idea that, um, you know, agency panic is a way of recreating patriarchal modes of behavior you know, to me, that clearly verges on conspiracy theorizing. But recreate suggests that its patriarchy isn't there anymore. So I mean, and that, that, but I don't want to, I don't want to deal with that point. I, what I wanted to say is that the book is directed against precisely post-structural notions of reduced subjectivity of the fragmented self and so on. And what he argues in going through we all these texts is to find is is to find that there is. That, that somehow we're not able to let go of the liberal humanist subjectivity and there's good and that there's a good reason for that in that it, it somehow seems more true to us than um than uh than than the fragmented self what I see is Melly's, the real the, the case that Melly, must have been reading case, a different book, no, Alex. Uh, the case that the, Melly, the real conspiracy is that there were different copies, three different copies <laughs> of the book yeah. sent to the three of no, us. The, the, I think the case is pretty clear in the conclusion in that um that he's basically trying to thread a line that is neither holding on to some version of the fully autonomous self-determining subject, which doesn't exist, 
if it ever did exist, um, that it certainly doesn't exist by by twentieth by the twentieth century. Effectively, that we're socially embedded, that we're to a certain extent, you know, that we're we're built, that we're social beings. Effectively, that society precedes us. Um, and on the other hand, this um, postmodern notion that we should abandon any notion of agency and subjectivity, that we're all fragmented, there is no coherent self, and so on. So, and I, let me just quote from the conclusion. He, his case is that if we could come to see ourselves as self-regulating systems existing within and open to a web of larger communicative systems, we might be able to move beyond the melodramatic accounts of our own actions, desires, and identities. We could begin to theorize modes of resistance aimed at specific ideological targets rather than at the social order as a whole. So he's trying to get beyond this kind of paranoid American notion of the individual self um, assailed by the social order as a whole is this kind of totalitarian yeah. figure and, and, um, and understand ourselves as more embedded in society, which I, I'm fully on board with. I think it's uh, it's a false opposition. Um, and the idea, you know, so I think it misconceives the nature of, um, of classical liberalism of American classical ideas of American citizenship and so on. I think his instincts that he wants to kind of break out of the, out of an, um, a cleft stick, are right, but the way that he does it is totally unconvincing. And he, he, you know, at the end, what he's describing essentially, what he sees as the problem, is you know that um, the recreation of individual ego. He would prefer for it to be dissolved into mm. you know kind of larger modalities of resistance, larger think, kind of. That's exactly it. He says yeah, this very no. clearly throughout the text. He concedes George, at the end. George. Well, I mean, so I'm just I'm talking. Yeah, but, you're repeat, but you're repeating what you had already said. So yeah, and you're saying that he says it, but you're not actually saying where he says it or what words he says it in. Well, I presume that we all read the text. So. We did, but, but for going, listeners' I, sake, it would be good if they, if you referred to to what's actually yeah. there. George. I mean, I th so my my I I don't. I'm not sure I agree with either of the two, two of you. So we've got three different opinions, which is good, I think. But I think this it, it is the central political point of the you know of the reading that he sees. Conspiracy theory is a troubled defense of an old but increasingly beleaguered concept of personhood. The idea that the individual is a rational, motivated agent with a protected interior core of beliefs, desires, and memories. And so that's right at the beginning. And I thought, okay, this is going to Thank be you. this is going to be a defense of those things. This is going to be a kind of an anti-post-structuralist um kind of attempt to kind of defend the subject and defend the the possibilities for, for for choice and for political action and i think he ends up quite ambivalent i don't think he like fully swallows the post-structuralist pill if post-structuralists produce pills maybe they do maybe they don't but or the drink drinks they're, they're kool-aid if they do the same thing but whatever i mean so he concludes in post-war culture however an intending monolithic agent still seems easier to comprehend and resist than a complex array of structures and communications I mean, it's very kind of like maybe this, maybe that language, even if we know deep down that self-control is not an all or nothing proposition. It's like, I don't know if I do know that self-control is not an all or nothing proposition. I think it's kind of an important point that it is an, an, an all or nothing proposition that you do have self-control and that you, you are able to act rationally. Otherwise, it's kind of you're, you're just leaning into that death of the subject stuff and you're kind of I, I, dissolving the individual in the acid bath of of structures yeah, or something right. but i, I like, think you're, yeah, you I think wanted, you're operating wait, on wait wait i wanted you wanted the text i'm going to give it to you alex he says in the conclusion if this tendency has a meaning it may simply be that it is hard to abandon the coherent and willful liberal subject he also says nor should we miss the fact that many of our most radical 
Um, encounters with a decented subject are presented to us in the mode of panic by terrified characters and worried cultural critics. As liberal humanism gives way to newer models of subjectivity, which she very clearly kind of elevates, it seems unlikely to do so without a struggle. Right. So he admits there's a tenacious grip of a of a liberal, what he calls a kind of a liberal subject, a liberal individualism. It exerts a tenacious grip on the American imagination. It's a problem to be overcome. He's willing to try and account for why it exerts such a tenacious grip, but he sees it as a problem because he says very explicitly, but I won't be able to find it for you, but it's in the um, introduction. He says very explicitly, you know, it's this kind of thinking. It's the kind of William Burroughs style thinking that means people don't join unions. I, I must have missed the, the point about not joining unions, but um, I, I guess the, the the point is that I don't think we're well served. I mean, I'm with Melly here in holding to a kind of non-sociological understanding of the of the subject, you know, basically all of philosophy has tried to like kick out at the Cartesian subject ever since the beginning. Um, and so I don't think, I don't think defending subjectivity, which we're all would want absolutely to do both individual and, and collective is well served by creating a sort of idea of the monist individual kind of separate from society, which is what these conspiracy theories play to. The conspiracy theories play very much to this idea of, of, a, of an isolated individual assailed by society, which becomes, um, which is self-defeating, of course, and which inhibits any kind of resistance, practical resistance, practical politics, effectively, um, to, to change society because it's society is seen as the enemy to the individual. I mean, I see what you're saying, and I, I mean, I just, it just makes me a little bit uncomfortable. This kind of like a non-sociological view of the subject, because that is that like saying that I can't make decisions myself. This no, is, of course look, this not. Is my, of course my, not. This is but my crankishness coming that. through. Yeah. Are you telling me that I don't know what I'm doing? Are you telling I think me Melly would? I, I think Melly would decisions? be happy with that. None of us, mm. but like, but like, for example, the, the case of total self-control. I mean, all of psychoanalysis kind of would um, undermine that notion. The fact is that we're contradictory beings um, in some ways pushed and pulled by things which are, of which we're not aware of, right? About the unconscious. Yeah, but and where there's ego shall be, right? That's the well, point of okay. psychoanalysis and, but we should, to and there's, extend there's, the center of self-control. Exactly, exactly. It is an aim, but it is not a reality, a given reality, nor is it kind of fully achievable. Um, that, in fact, is the product of a lot of neuroses, of, of the attempt to achieve total control of yourself because you... You can't, both because you can't, you're not fully aware of your own desires, let alone are you um, able to control the the external environment. Um, to yeah, but this isn't a psychoanalytic. This isn't a psychoanalytic take on these questions. This I'm, is a, you know, this is a society is this complex system. It's all cybernetic. The self, the individual self, is fragmented, um, contaminated by patriarchal ideas. You know, so I mean, that kind of the classical Freudian ideal of psychoanalysis about strengthening the ego. That is definitely not Melly's case, right? In I'm fact, quite... he would probably put it in the paranoiac strain, that Freudian idea. Mm, mm, I mean, I, sure I guess that. I'm more personally more sympathetic to the idea that we're, you know, we're contradictory and there are kind of internal limits and constraints and, you know, human life and is a, is a process of like trying to achieve the unachievable, becoming aware of these constraints and all this sort of thing. I mean, that, but that seems a bit different to a kind of sociological reading because then that's, I mean, obviously they're related, but I just think it's like, the, the what's the political 
aim of that kind of like we need to account for social forces and social influences on people's it's, it's like undermining people's decisions i mean no which, see see but i i think, I think you feel yourself might be too crude by... no i think i think look if, if the history of sociology and you know we can take marx's kind of perfect example of that is one which holds that the individual isn't fully kind of self-determining in the sense of like is born ex nihilo and completely determines their own content so my 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 point i guess to make it more political is that if we want to defend against those forces which seek to curtail subjectivity and say oh well we're all, we're all irrational we need to take care of things for you we need to have a we need to have be based on a model of subjectivity which is realistic and not one which is a kind of complete dichotomous opposite to what to, to the to the kind of ones that we're presented with. So if they say you have no rationality, no, we're fully rational, right? I mean, that would be the a kind of caricature even of of like neoclassical economics, which you know. No, but I think so. I mean, I you know, they, I I think we're agreed, Alex, that you know you don't want to get trapped in this cleft stick um, of either kind of dissolving away the entirety of individual ego. Um, but at the same time of kind of uh, or in kind of overestimating the capacity of um, individual actors as well, particularly given uh, the scale of the kind of forces that individuals confront in um, in contemporary society. So I think, you know, that is true. However, I think from Melly's point of view, um, the problem is that the idea, you know, instead of seeing a contradiction, um, an internal a contradiction that's internal to society to be resolved. He sees it as he sees the um, that idea of liberal agency not as something which is um, you know an institutionalized form of agency which is caught up in tremendous kind of contradictions in contemporary society. Rather, he sees it as a pernicious illusion, right? That's tenacious and appealing to some degree. But nonetheless, kind of um, it gets in the way of kind of organizing uh, the collective resistance on the scale that's needed. Okay, um, we're going to try to pull out some others strands here otherwise we'll um we could continue this for quite a long time um i wanted to bring in uh, a citation actually a citation of citation because Melly cites norman mailer who in mid-century said that since the jfk assassination we're marooned in two equally intolerable spiritual states apathy and paranoia um, and i wonder if this doesn't still hold today um it's interesting that they put apathy and paranoia or mailer puts apathy and paranoia together as sort of these uh, mutually uh, in, incompatible states but which were kind of flitting between one and the other um or, or you know whether there's an opposition between them so I'm, I'm reminded actually of the way that we characterized in the end of the end of history the shift um as one from apathy to anger the end of history de uh, defined by apathy and the end of the end of history defined by anger as kind of the general effective state. And I wonder, you know, if we throw paranoia in there, you know, or is, is paranoia something that characterizes the end of the end of history uh, in the way that apathy characterized the end of history? Or maybe I'm just being too simplistic about this. Maybe that's, you know, trying to, to, no, to I think, put things I mean, too straightforward. I th you know, I mean, in as much as it's possible to, you know, indulge in these kind of broad scale generalizations at all. I think it's a good one. In fact, I think paranoia is, you know, Russia Gate, Pizza Gate, dark money, 
um the da you know davos set um epstein murder um you know i mean all of these things right um or i don't know the 5g conspiracy about covid and all of this all of this stuff i think is much more prevalent it's not to say you know that there was a there was an important kind of subterranean current of conspiracy theories during the end of history but it seems to have really broken to the surface in the end of the end of history and it would you know it would be unsurprising that it would do so right because the point of the end of the end of history is um the drift and the lack of control you have the breakdown of the status quo but with no real capacity or um powerful agency to steer us in a different direction so it'd be unsurprising that in that in that context that people would feel um you know would uh, subscribe to conspiracy theories there is what there is one thing on agency panic which um which we haven't mentioned and which might be worth mentioning uh, is even though it loops us back a bit because we've talked about this before with conspiracy theories and something we mentioned before was, you know, the point of conspiracy theories is that it absolves you of taking action. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, you important. know, um, and that doesn't really, Melly doesn't really deal with that. Right. So the idea that, um, you know, kind of the idea of the conspiracy theory is you're the smart person, you see through the conspiracy and you don't really have to, you know, because it's all so tightly controlled, there's nothing you can really do. So you kind of claim your badge as a smart person, unlike the sheeple, and you don't have to do anything. So you can kind of, you know, sit with your tinfoil hat in front of your computer and, you know, bitch about it online or whatever. Um, and Mali doesn't really do with the fact that it's also, you know, one of the purposes of conspiracy theory is abs absolving you of having to take action. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a really yeah. important point. I just wanted to add something to that, which I thought was an interesting point Mali makes, I think, in the chapter one, which is that he sees... So like you have the paranoid subject who thinks he's being completely controlled and whatever. And, you know, I think the important point also, just as an aside, the important point about paranoia is that it's not just skepticism um or you know even cynicism or whatever about um forces trying to control you but it's that there's a kind of a certain i don't know narcissism it's probably not the right word in in, in technical terms but like that it that effectively these forces care about you right that it that, that these powerful forces are trying to control you and that they're interested in you specifically um and the the more proper attitude is to be paranoid about your paranoia. And he finds in many of the works that he studies that the characters do this, right? So you think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm being fully controlled. I'm not really in control of my thoughts, but am I? Maybe I'm being overly paranoid about my paranoia, et cetera. And that that's a kind of, um, I think he argues that that's a more kind of solid attitude than just to fully abandon yourself to, to, to paranoia. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a, just to, just quickly on the, conspiracy theory and action point i mean it, it it necessitates a certain it doesn't fully absolve you from action it requires you to take action in educating yourself or spreading the word not actually any like concrete political action but you just have to like the truth is out there you have to your responsibility is to get it and, and distribute it but alex on your point about paranoia at the end of the end of history i think it's a good it's a kind of a good way to frame it maybe because if you had the end of history having like no agency or like the collective um actors that could have um could have kind of like been agents de declining and, and not doing anything then the end of the end of history is the period where things happen um but those agents have just been dormant or like haven't been around for a while so the question of who's who is doing these things like it naturally becomes like um you know one that people ask so can Brexit you, can and you... trump these 
Can you put a name to these? Yeah, like who, who are these agents yeah, yeah. Who are supposed so, to be doing something? Well, well, that's exactly where the see. Look, you're acting like the the, the paranoid person. Who are these agents <laughs> no, no, supposed just... to be doing Brexit and Trump? So, for, for for example, but so I guess the the idea would be precisely that like feeling of uncertainty about like where did these apparently meaningful events come from? The interpretive schemas that we had developed in the past. 25 odd years don't fit don't explain this so there mm. is a question of who's like like you can see if if it if it is apathy or um absence of agency i think that linking of like of i mean and this is why i thought it was such an interesting reading is putting agency as as central or the lack of agency or questions of about agency does seem to fit in that kind of end of history end of end of history period that in some ways the end of the end of history period is one where the actions like pre-dated uh, the identification of the agents who could have done them, mm. if that makes well, sense. Well, so so here's so to build on that because I think that's interesting. How does this fit with cynicism? Because I think, and I'm just going to put this out there. Obviously, the apathy of you know the kind of classic '90s, 2000 apathy is in some sense, is, is a classic example of, of the cynical ideology, right? Um, I don't really believe in what, you know, the politicians are telling me, but whatever. You just kind of don't pay attention, carry on. Um, nevertheless, you know, you basically conform. Or you might nod, or you might kind of aestheticize your resistance, um, but basically you're conforming. Um, and the paranoia today, um, if, we're, if we're agreeing that, you know, paranoia characterizes our time, that that itself is also kind of, I guess, a form of... Um, it's still it's still within the bounds of cynicism um that you know i don't believe um in official narratives uh i am resistant to them or i'm trying to resist to them as much as i can because they you know they control me um but in fact there's no actual um difference in in behavior especially not political behavior so i'm thinking here like of of um dale gribble right the character in king of the hill uh, if you're not familiar with the the cartoon mike david mike makes not mike davis but um mike judge's cartoon from the 90s and 2000s which is excellent by the way we're completely worth revisiting apologies if i've said this on this podcast before but i think it just captures something absolutely brilliant um Dale Gribble, one of the four kind of main characters, kind of a neighbor of the of the protagonist, uh, is a complete conspiracy theorist. You know, proper tinfoil hat thinks you know has all the theories about JFK, all the theories about um, UFOs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and so he completely disbelieves the official narratives. He is a believer in kind of any conspiracy theory going effectively, um, even uses an assumed identity, Rusty Shackelford, at any available opportunity, even when it's just things like he's trying to, I don't know, like steal something from a shop and or, you know, <laughs> whatever, um, pull some sort of stunt on, on his friends or whatever. Um, but he carries on normally. Right. He behaves. In a, he's completely compliant. Um, when the police comes knocking, he kind of responds, answers the door and that responds politely and so on. And so that would be, I guess, a, an example of, of the cynicism there. Right. He believes he completely distrusts all official narratives and yet completely is compliant in, in every other way. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I was sort of thinking about this before we recorded and I thought there is an aspect of conspiracy theory, which is not that cynical, but kind, kind of like hopeful or um anti-cynical like not naive but like credulous um this idea and hopeful in the sense that like somebody is responsible there's something that's happening here this isn't just a complete like mess of like things happening basically uncontrollably and randomly but there is also a sense in which the yes yeah, like you 
you can hold this idea that the satanic pedophiles run the world but yeah what are you going to do about it so i mean it is maybe it still functions as a cynical ideology to the extent that you know it allows people to sort of to project the forces arrayed against them as so massive that there's no need to act because it's like as phil was basically saying is because it's like you know you, you can't do anything about all these people there's just too much um concentrated power uh, on the other side and nobody believes you anyway so you might as well just kind of focus on the, the private and and chill out a little bit yeah no I, I, that's that's good and th- i think i want to bring in something um which is i'm going to refer back actually as a segue to king of the hill because what's great about the dale gribble character is that his wife is con- especially in the first seasons continually cheating on him like all the time right in fact his son is in fact was not uh, fathered by by him himself it was in fact uh, fathered by the by by the mother's lover um and when he's presented with ever more obvious facts about this uh, proof that he's being cheated on he actually finds crazy conspiracy theory style explanations for what it might what might actually be going on so as not to confront the reality that he's being cheated on which i think is great it's like what just such a, a brilliant comic and dramatic moment in, in this cartoon um but um the, i think the example of cheating uh and, and the jealous husband or whatever is very important and i'm going to bring in something i guess people will be familiar with it's this thing that uh, Lacan had about, you know, a patient who was insanely jealous of his wife, believing her to be cheating. The Though Lacan held that even if all the husband's suspicions proved true and that his wife was indeed cheating, his, his jealousy was still pathological, which is to say that that jealousy is an attempt to fill some sort of lack within the husband, his need for uh, either a big idea to, you know, the, this kind of uh, thing to discover. I need to send detectives, uh, private investigators after my wife to find out this the truth about it, um, and, or even just uh, to sustain his own dignity. Uh, he somehow um, needs to believe that she is cheating and that he holds these secret suspicions about her to retain some dignity, um, to retain his identity even, um, you know, against the fact that he's obviously a cuck. Um, so, and I think this obviously applies very well to conspiracy theorizing. So, you know, you say that, ah, well, you know, actually, um, COVID was concocted in a lab deliberately, um, as a means to get us all to submit to vaccinations and, uh, various forms of control, because then elites can pursue whatever interest they want and further accumulation or further control or whatever it might be. Um, and that you'd say, okay. Even supposing all of what you say is true, what's the so what, right? So I think that that's the right question to ask when confronted with conspiracy theories, even if we're sympathetic to them or believe they have some truth to them. So what? Um, let's maybe we should ask, okay, let's assume that is true. Now what? What changes? Um, and I think that that often ends up being quite confounding because you go, uh, well, then you've lost that thing that you were holding on to, that, you know, that suspicion that motivated you. If it's all out in the open and we all accept, yes, all of society agrees that your conspiracy theory is exactly true. What now? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it is a good it is a good question. I think the the there is something in in that kind of analog, because, you know, what what is it that conspiracy theorists conspiracy theories give the conspiracy theorist? It's not really a set of like simple uh, actions to take to solve the problem, but it is a 
um it you know it, it definitely speaks and we've we've kind of covered this a bit already but it speaks to that kind of old and beleaguered concept of personhood that kind of romanticized particularly in many's reading like um masculine idea of the the kind of the coherent individual the social forces as feminizing domesticating powers that kind of violate those the borders of the self inhabiting it and controlling it from within like all of these kind of um large social systems which are you know enemies of this dying american individualism i mean if we're all americans now then that's something which the conspiracy theorist gets is that kind of def- need to reassert the importance of the um, the individual being able to to act and to have and having some kind of clear um boundaries and self control i mean it doesn't actually obviously solve anything but it that's where it comes from perhaps well that would be melly's account i would i'd imagine <laughs> Okay, good. So um, just kind of bringing this towards the end, um, two more points I thought we should discuss. The first is, um, you know, we've already said that, you know, apathy uh, kind of seems to coexist with paranoia, or maybe paranoia follows what was previously an apathetic couple of decades. Um, Where does skepticism then lie, which would be the central classic enlightenment stance? Does it get kind of lost among this that we're, you know, e- either torn between the paranoiacs um, theorizing about, you know, and, uh, and and kind of distance from the elites? You know, I'm not, I don't believe what I'm told and I'm the opposition. Um, I'm with the people against the elites or whatever it might be um, versus the apathetic one where it basically says either the elites are doing a good job and they're fine. Actually, no one says that. Like, that's just not a position that's you know, popularly, popularly held today. Um, I mean, other than in small kind of fairly like upper middle class circles, but let's ignore them. Um, so, you know, either you're, you have this kind of apathy or conformity, compliance, complacency, um, or you have the paranoiac stance. Um, and the kind of the, the line of skepticism seems to be, seems yeah, to be well, lost in that. I, it's good that I'm here to bring it back. So you set, you set up that question very well. I'm skeptical. That's a that's a that was a George that was a George I'm skeptical of you in particular. <laughs> you didn't del- you didn't deliver it with enough conviction? I don't think. Um, but no, I I mean it's a it's kind of a good question. I think the response has to be not to worry about the the haters and the doubters who call you a crank or who call you a conspiracy theorist because. Like the imperative is to reject conformity, compl- compliance, and complacency, or whatever. No, but you, you do saying. want to keep like, conspiracy theory as an insult, right? I mean, I do want to use it against the Russiagate people and the dark money people because they yeah, are you'll insane. Ha- you'll have it uh, thrown back at you, though, and it's yeah, not. I mean, I, it's but, but conspiracy we can debate- theorist is not the harshest. Like, I don't know. It's just like what, 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 what is that conspiracy theory saying about the people who? Those okay, but look, precisely what I can leading us to blunder into a into you know, I think I mean I think RussiaGate is has measurably contributed to the possibility of world war a nuclear war with Russia, you know. So I mean, those are not. I mean, I you know I don't think it's. I still don't think on the balance of probability that it's um, more probable than not. But that seems to me the stakes are significant enough that it needs to be called out for the sheer deranged lunacy that it is. Right? You so you can't abandon the claim of over attributing agency to the Russian state, you know, which is what they did. And yeah. I but think... what, what is the explanation then? That's the thing. Like you can call them demented and lun- lunatic and those, you know, 
and maybe but conspiracy theorists is like well what is the explanation then what really caused these political events you need some political you need some realism right, it's some... lucky that we've got a podcast that has well, the, yeah. <laughs> has addressed some of these questions before right yeah and i think you know i think we should be and not just we should be you know we be able to wield the stick of conspiracy theory against elite conspiracies elite conspiracy theories which we should absolutely do and also be you know skeptical of the reality of genuine elite conspiracies because these things do happen um but i think it's important to remember one that is generally not the way the world works uh you know we can unveil every elite conspiracy there's ever been and it still doesn't really explain how the world works because the world works more by objective social processes than the kind of intentionality of small secretive groups. And that gets me to the point that I think, you know, the socialism of fools is always kind of amongst us, right? It's always a, a, a risk. Uh, socialism of fool here, I mean, I'm referring, you know, classically referred specifically to anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, yeah. But 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 I think it it that is a general kind of structure of thought that applies many in, you know, kind of apply to things which aren't, you know, anti-Semitic, have nothing to do with the Jews. I don't know and why so it's got anything to do with socialism at all. I mean, it seems to me to, you know, go much deeper than that. And that you would want them kind of ex it's not a problem which is specific to the left. You know, I mean, when Kautsky sure. was making the point about socialism of fools, it was like Bebel. you know, kind of a Sorry, yes, uh, Babel. Um, it was something that he was trying to um, kind of, uh, ec- you know, it was a pernicious influence on a significant social, powerful social political constituency. Whereas it doesn't, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's kind of, uh, there is no equivalent. Yeah. And on top of that, you have many deranged kind of sets of ideas kind of bumping up against each other. No, I think that's right. And you you could say, well, the left is so weak or meaningless or non-existent or whatever today, um, or so folded into the establishment that that maybe isn't so much a concern. But if we, even if we, you know, if, if we're going to take that to its logical conclusion, say, ah, left and right doesn't even mean anything anymore, not a position I hold. But if we're going to do that, then you would have to, I think, see, you know, all the people, you know, just generally amongst the masses kind of arguments and explanations for why uh, the world works as it is, which follow the model of a kind of structural anti-Semitism, right? Of a, of that there's a small uh, intentioned group uh, secretively acting um, against our interests. That that needs to be that needs to be always combated because I think there's always that you know that 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 always presents itself because it's a simple and compelling narrative. And you know if the argument is that well no it, you know capitalism functions according to you know almost against the intentions or or despite the intentions of you know individual agents that's something that needs to be constantly made otherwise you end up in well I mean you know in extremists in sort in in you know pogroms of what of all various different sorts of basically trying to chase at these supposed agents who are malevolent and the cause of all our ills and suddenly you can you know you have to play that out and go well let's say we did get rid of all these you know malevolent ills right let's say we got rid of the world economic forum what happens then well actually you'll find that society is pretty much the same as it is now let's get rid of all the woke professors we'll get rid of them what happens then well it's kind of the society ends up exactly the same as it is now maybe with some slight no, changes and things so on. would be much better without the way uh, they would be better I without the woke professors it, well, actually, Alex, I thought I, I was about to agree with you it, like, with the whole point, and then you brought in the woke professors. Um, but no, I just wanted to go back to um, the definition that you get, gave at the beginning of conspiracy theories being like a small hidden group, um, you know, acting in a powerful, acting to to further their interests. And I think what, at least in my reading of the Melly, what he says is, yeah, this is 
over the course of the 20th century, that model of conspiracy theory, particularly the small hidden group bit, has now been replaced by a kind of mass open conspiracy. So instead of having this like small behind the scenes group, now it's like the idea is that through these large conspirators, so organization, technology and various systems, which are the antithesis of that kind of small group, it's now like conspiracies on a mass scale like we're talking about conspiracy theory we've all heard of these conspiracies like the better the older type of conspiracy theory that kind of original flavor that's like it operates in the shadows it operates like you know but behind the scenes but now we have a sort of conspiracy theory and Melly says this is because it conceptualizes the, the relations between individuals and large social bodies which operates in plain sight which is kind of operates through mass media tries to kind of convince people that this is true or that's not true so i think there is i thought that was really interesting that he's he kind of says this like older model which may or may not really have ever been had a kind of cultural impact as as on the that the current one does um but basically doesn't pertain anymore like mm. is, is there are there models of people beh- acting behind the scenes like maybe but i guess yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, actually. That, no, that's well observed. And I think it's something that follows the structure of capitalism itself in a way. So that's there's a certain truth to that transformation, right? If it's small groups running things, yeah, that's the old form of uh, of the unity of ownership and control, where you have the capitalist kind of owning and, and controlling the company. Um, but then you get the you know the corporate form, which which follows on already. You know that this is very old news. This is almost a hundred years now, um, where the, the form of power is much more. Uh, power is much more disaggregated and and less identified with the subject. In fact, I think in the conclusion um, to the Melly reading uh, in the epilogue of you know corporate control, he, he I think he even points out the kind of um, contradiction there. I think in William Gibson's account, if I'm not mistaken, but where there's like there's this totally um, technological corporation, high tech corporation which controls everything, <laughs> but then you go and find out that actually there's like this little old guy <laughs> running the thing. It's kind of yeah. this Wizard of Oz moment, except at the same time. He doesn't control things. No, and yet that's he does. not William. That's not William Gibson. That's Blade Runner. Ah, okay. Sorry, it's it the scene Runner where yeah. uh, Rutger Hauer, Roy Batty, kills um, the head of the Tyrell Corporation. Yeah, there What's he goes. Ty- so, yeah, Tyrell. So, yeah. so again, that's a, that. That almost, in a you know, sense, is, a, is an element of, I guess, the logic of conspiracy theory of wanting to seek out a kind of oversimplified story and a, this central agent, which is able to control things, rather than it's the reality. It's very where good. It's, yeah. So well, it's actually a very good example of what I was talking about earlier, right? Because he misses a really important point in Blade Runner, um, which undercuts his whole thing. So he, you know, like his line is kind of criticizing Blade Runner because um, on the one hand, it, you know, precisely because it's a recreation of the kind of the noir, the individual, right? The de- kind of noir detective, um, mm. sci-fi noir detective, who's uh, Deckard, who's the heroic lone individual who manages to do all of these things in this kind of dark and manipulated world and he misses the point you know at the end of blade runner deckard realizes he's a replicant I mean, oh spoiler you know, alert come he's on actually well you know whatever um i mean it's been a given it's been around for long enough that i think i can give away the spoiler on um to our patrons yeah. at least so and it's a really important point, right? Because he's still, despite knowing that he's, um, you know, arti- artificially created, so to speak, at least in the terms of the of the film zone kind of um, setting, he nonetheless is able to act autonomously, 
right? And that he's able to kind of secure his future with his um, with his girlfriend, Rachel. And so it seems, you know, it seemed to kind of be oblivious to that very important part of the story. Seems to me to show just how, um, you know, how he misses the important point, right? Which is that there is the capacity for individual autonomy and the exercise of individual freedom, even in the circumstances where you're entirely, you know, kind of fabricated, essentially, as in the case of Descartes, the replicant, right? Yeah. So and it's not a spoiler makes... alert because it's obvious from the start of the new Blade Runner movie. <laughs> I, th- I think right? it's fine. So People it's have seen Blade Runner. It's fine. So you could you could say Descartes makes history, but not in the manner of his own choosing. But we, I guess we all we're all in that more in the same boat in that sense. Though Melly, you know, Melly seems to think we are to that extent. So anyway, I mean, let's I think not, let's not go I think back it's to a that, telling. I think it's, it's a point. telling omission. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair, Phil. Um, so l- to round this out, um, I wanted to ask this really big, grand question, which is kind of stupid, but um, I think hopefully a good discussion ensues. Um, and this is also a way of rounding out not just this discussion about conspiracy theory, but this question, this whole block about ideology that we've been doing over the past three months from cynical ideology, the question of trust uh, now to conspiracy theory and paranoia, uh, which is uh, to put it in the terms that uh, former President Obama did. Uh, is there an, ep- an epistemological crisis today? Um, of course, so the, just to just to set it up before before discussing it, uh, the idea would be that we no longer share common ground to assess truth and falsity. So whereas previously we might have debated different politics, but it was politics that were that were arrayed around a central notion of what there is in society about what the truth is. So you might want freer markets, you want might more state intervention, but you accept the reality of what um, of what the contemporary order is. And uh, you know Obama seemed to think, and he's not the only one, to that there's an epistemological crisis that we can't even find that common ground to understand you know what are the bases of truth anymore um so is there one and i asked this on twitter and then get a whole bunch of different uh responses so i thought that was kind of interesting but uh actually let me just say what these possible responses are before you guys come in so one option is just say that no there's no epistemological crisis uh another one is that no there have always been conflicting epistemologies ways that we um you know, find out how we know things uh, and that there's always been conflicting ones in today's context is no different, really. Uh, Another is to say no. And even the idea of stipulating an epistemological crisis is part of some globalist strategy for domination. It's a way of um, denouncing our alternative epistemologies of, of, or rather of denouncing the, you know, the popular truth against the the elite falsity. Um, One is that Yes, and it's the populace who are responsible, right? So um, we we were all good. We all believed in the same things before, um, and now the populace have come along and um, you know ripped up the world with fake news and, and post truth. Uh, another one is to say yes, there is an epistemological crisis, but effectively it's the establishment that's responsible for undermining the Enlightenment. That, for example, uh, scientism and you know. Um, crap uh, establishment-aligned journalism has undermined people's belief in the truth and that that's created an epistemological crisis. And probably there's other responses available too. Um, Guys, what do we think? Well, I've got one response, which you haven't listed, which is that I, the very fact that a, that Obama would use the word epistemological crisis, he would use, you know, kind of a technical term from um, philosophy and try to kind of make it a part of public, of public debate, just speaks to what a sleazy, you know, kind of snooty Harvard Mandarin he is. And I object so strongly to dressing up 
you know, the fact that um, his favored candidate lost the election to Trump and dressing that up as a kind of as a, you know, something which is kind of not only kind of, you know, a threat to the American Republic, but a threat to the very kind of nature of truth itself. You know, I mean, that is so kind of um, so sleazy and so characteristic of a particular kind of American intellectual that Obama exemplified. I dis- I agree. But nonetheless, you can still ask the question, is there an epistemological crisis, whatever about Obama? So Phil's answer is um, it's it's a not a none of the above. It's specifically not. Yes. And it's a populist who are responsible. And, you know, I think, you know, you've, you've, you've got to you've got to reject that one out of hand. I mean, I think the simple answer is the second one. No, there have always been conflicting epistemologies. There's Marxism and there's bourgeois ideology. And, those, you know, it's one or the other. You may make your choice. Um, well, I thought you were it. an advocate of conspiracy theory, which is the exact opposite of Marxism. So I don't know. Bourgeois ideology. Yeah, well, you know, Lukács got it right. You got one. It's one or the other. Um, yeah, and in fact, I think like Zizek says somewhere that actually conspiracy theory is actually most similar to Stalinism in in opposition actually to Marx because um, Stalinism was obsessed with you know all these secret plots and you know kind of uh, attributing agency to kind of um, conscious beings who are trying to undermine the revolution or whatever rather than um, having a truly structural understanding. So um, anyway. Uh, just food for thought there. Um, any any more on the epistemological crisis? Otherwise, we will uh, close. No, this I think off. it's. Um, I think that the, the question, which actually was quite an interesting, one got slightly short shrift from um, from both your co-hosts, which was a little rude, perhaps. But I think the you know there is a. We've talked a lot about the um, about cynical ideologies, like, and I guess basically the the conclusion would be, it is the wrong question, right? Because it's not about whether it's about truth or falsity, it's the consequences of action that these, um, you know, not to be too much of a pragmatist about it, but it's the, you know, the link to what does those, what do these cynical ideologies allow you or permit you to do in terms of reproducing the, the, the current form of society. And I mean, I think that's the, that's something that's come out of all of our discussions is that that cynicism is both a, it's primarily, it, it, it's mistaken as an epistemological approach, but really it's one which is related to, um, absolving yourself um of the need to act yeah no i i my my take is is, is a historical one that I, I agree kind of with you george that there's always been conflicting epistemologies and to the extent that there hasn't been that's a product of the particular kind of consensus society of post-war europe and north america and what followed it um which was even the, the even the more consensual uh end of history period uh, and taking that as the norm um, leads us to think that today is particularly crazy, <laughs> to put it in really basic terms, um, when in fact it kind of conforms to more to the reality of what capitalism has always been like, um, albeit in a more high tech form. Anyway, um, we'll leave that here. Uh, thank you, everyone, very much for following along with this. Um, we hope the local reading clubs are are still ongoing and that they're proving fruitful for you. Uh, get in touch, you know, get in touch to let us know how they're going. Get in touch if you wanted us to give another shout out to your region. Um, and if not, and, and regardless, we will close off this section on cynical ideology. And we're going to finish out the year, um, the last three months of the year, on uh, a theme called techno-populism or neo-neo, uh, excuse me, 
<laughs> I always do that. Techno-feudalism or neo-feudalism. Um, we're all very much looking forward to doing that. Um, there's three sets of readings, one which uh, is on neo-feudalism kind of more directly, a second one which is um, looking at the role of labor, precarity, and so on, which kind of underpins so much of this notion of neo-feudalism, uh, and another one more on technology and that the, the way that the machines operate, if we're not sounding too kind of conspiracy theory minded um, by putting it that way. And we're going to have an additional episode to tag along with that um, because there was an important essay by uh, Evgeny Morozov, which came out in the New Left Review specifically on this question. So we're going to do an additional episode as well, um, I think, which will be come out sometime in November, early November, uh, discussing all of this, um, which should help deepen our understanding of this supposed neo-feudal or techno-feudal thesis. Okay, uh, we hope you've enjoyed this. Tell your friends uh, if you think that they would benefit also from joining the Reading Club, uh, let them know. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I hope uh, we all have here too. Catch you next time. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.